in our explorations of uh, transcendental or uh, liberative dependent arising, we reached liberation last Friday night. I think it's helpful to ask uh, what comes after liberation. One of our well-known Spirit Rock authors says, the laundry, (laughs) after the ecstasy, the laundry. We've all had um, some sense of increased freedom, uh, moments of um, being awake, very ordinary ways, just being present, uh, being here, seeing into our patterns, uh, seeing where we're caught. These are all in a way moments of freedom. And they're moments of liberation. And I think it's important at this point in the retreat, and really what we've been doing the last few days, is to ask, uh, how does our practice continue to develop? We have some insight into freedom, and there's still further insights. Uh, Many people reporting, new insights and uh, continue deepening. So I wanted to just mention in in beginning just a few ways that we uh, continue our practice, uh, that we continue to sustain our practice. What happens after liberation? Number one, life goes on. And it keeps on going on. You know, it's... I think retreats are places where we can sometimes really explore some of the mysteries of time. You know, why do things keep continuing? I know that's been um, a mystery that's interested me. I think I remember really feeling it most strongly when I was a college student uh, in the Northeast and going a few times down to Florida for spring break on Greyhound buses. I would sit there like at midnight or one in the morning and say, why is time keeping on going? I'm just sitting here on a Greyhound bus and that's at least how my mind worked at that time. So, um, So first things keep happening. We keep on having experience. It doesn't matter whether we've had uh, amazing, wonderful experiences or difficult experiences. Every moment is a fresh moment for practice. I think it both takes patience and it's one of the great glories of our practice that we always come back to that fresh beginning. No matter where we are, we begin again. kind of a a mercy in a way. Wherever we've been, we start right now, right here.
we also can continue to stabilize the qualities we've developed. Continue to develop those factors of mindfulness and clear seeing and the open heart. Continue to stabilize and ground where we've been and really, in a way, build from our awakened places. For some of us, we have seen those awakened places grow. For some of us, we have the first sense of that, uh, what, uh, beautiful flower developing or the, um, what Heather called the big one, the big being that's with us and that that big being is growing. And so in our practice, we encourage that building of the big one. And the little one is still there, the little one that may be connected with our wounds or our fears, still may be present and still may feel present a lot, but the, the big one is there, so to speak. And both are, both are there and we build from that. And we also really, I think, integrate as we continue to practice, we integrate. And I think the talks of the last few evenings have really been about uh, connecting the heart with, with wisdom. Connecting the heart with freedom. Speaking about compassion and forgiveness and the relationship to wisdom because as we saw the understanding of freedom and, and sort of the uh, apex was more explained in terms of wisdom and clear seeing. And so we, it's very important to um, make those connections between wisdom and compassion, the heart and clear seeing. It's actually what I want to explore more uh, this evening particularly by looking at how we connect the qualities of the heart manifesting in loving kindness with the factor of equanimity, really the first and the last of the Brahma-vihara. We just started with equanimity. I thought I might just read you um, a short poem of sorts written by a student of mine as part of a a list, uh, a set of what he called the, the list of list doggerel. This is, this is on the Brahma Vihara. When the mind is filled with thoughts that really aren't so useful, metta is betta. <laughs> when you open up your heart to the sorrows of the world, you'll find karuna suna. When you feel that you can't share the joy of others' good fortune, remember, mudita is suita. (laughs) When the winds of the world can't blow you astray, you've got heka, upeka. (laughs) Maybe that will make the the American Buddhist canon at some point. We'll, We'll have to see. But before talking about loving kindness and equanimity and how they connect, 
I wanted to just say a few words about how we may have some confusion about how they connect and really, in a way, sharpen the uh, maybe a sense of challenge that may appear in connecting loving kindness and and equanimity, or even connecting the heart and wisdom, because sometimes it it seems that they speak different languages or come in in very different flavors, you know. So we may actually have questions. We haven't really had them to my memory in in the morning questions, but we may have questions of how does metta in which we, in which we uh, wish for the well-being of individuals, individual selves, myself and others, how does that connect with the teaching about not-self? You, you will not have the full answer this evening. <laughs> but I, I actually want to pose it because it can actually uh, energize us maybe a little bit. But if it goes to the mind and you start going around in circles, then good to come back to the breath. Um, But we can really ask that, that metta seems to uh, focus at times on what we might call the relative level of doing well, being happy, um, being healthy, and so forth. And it uses words which seem kind of clunky, and wisdom and clear seeing doesn't use words and seems to work on another level. So how do they go together? How do those go together? You know, or, you know, sometimes we speak of this, you know, the quality of a very personal journey that we're taking. You know, at other times we say the ultimate reality is empty phenomena rolling on. How does that connect with a personal journey? Sometimes metta seems to be warm and wisdom cool. Seems to be very different at times. Or if we look at equanimity, which we've been exploring the last uh, two afternoons, you know, with metta phrases we say, we essentially wish for the well-being of others. And then with the equanimity phrase we say something like, no matter what you wish for, things are as they are. <laughs> you know, is, is this sort of a Buddhist double bind? <laughs> or it's a setup, isn't it? You know, like, could be, could be quite confusing. Um, you know, and metta can seem to be invested in uh, results, you know? We can seem to, you know, I really want this person to be happy, or I, w- I want to be happy myself, or I want to be safe, and so forth. So, um, can sometimes even seem to be about wanting and what's, what's going on here. And wisdom teaches about um, inequanimity. You know, all my wanting and all my wishing, whatever I wish for, things are as they are. So how do they connect? You know, how do wisdom and compassion or wisdom in the heart connect? You know, it's really a version of the kind of question that I, I think can be generative. And, you know, in, in Zen, they would give you these kind of questions and say, sit with it, but don't think about it. <laughs> Which is interesting, you know, interesting 
to be at a different level than thinking and be with these kind of paradoxes. How do we, how do, we do that? But Mary Grace was, in a way, uh, offering a parallel kind of paradox or a series of paradoxes. How does ahimsa connect with Angulimala? Or how does the young woman who stays in the house connect with the young woman who leaves? Or how does our big self or our, our big one connect with our small one? So Suzuki Roshi kind of clarified this by, say, by summarizing this and not giving any further explanation. Things are perfect as they are and they could use some improvement. I hope that sort of settles things out a little bit. (laughs) So what I'd like to do is to first explore loving kindness in a little more depth and explore equanimity in a little more depth and then come back and show how they relate to each other and need each other. And so really the way I think of resolving that apparent paradox is really in our practice. And it's really in actually doing the practice of loving kindness or the heart practices, and really doing the, the wisdom practices. And the um, way that I find that some of those paradoxes get resolved is that we see that the heart without wisdom runs into problems and distortions and vice versa that the wisdom element without the heart tends to be distorted. The heart element without wisdom tends to be distorted and that they really require each other and that we actually point towards a more integrated wholeness, really, to, to echo Mary Grace's words, a wholeness in which, which we could call um, the wise heart or maybe the, something like a joyful wisdom, some expression of, of their integration. So first, a few words about loving kindness, uh, which we haven't actually focused on so much. Mary Grace did the very first evening, I remember. And loving kindness is really our foundational heart practice. And it's something wonderful to have developed as much as many of you have. It is a tremendous resource. It is something that when we've developed it here in this retreat, can really uh, be a companion, almost be part of our system. I know when I've done long periods of metta, I could feel it entering into my neural nets, you know? Can you feel that? You can feel that with the meditation sometimes. Uh, The nervous system gets changed. We don't advertise that exactly in the literature, but the nervous system and our neural nets get shifted um, for the better, don't worry. <laughs> um, but they get changed. So, so loving kindness, most basically, is the continual intention to rest in the good heart. It's an intention rather than a demand. That's why we do the practice and we incline our hearts towards opening and we try to find phrases that work for us. 
but we don't demand loving kindness. We incline ourselves. It's like we knock on the door of the heart and we invite a response, but we don't barge down the door. Or at least we're not instructed to. (laughs) My mentor in metta, Sylvia Borstein, speaks of metta as casting a spell of kindness. It's really coming from that heart place. And having that be more and more our ordinary um, place or an ordinary part of how we meet experience in the world. More and more. And of course, we go in and out of the open heart and we get startled and situations occur that shock us and we get lost a little bit. But the metta practice really is an invitation. And this is, I think, something important to think in terms of stabilizing practice, just to continue to ask, am I in my heart? Am I with my heart? It's a kind of mindfulness of the heart. Just to continue to ask or ask, where is my heart right now? Not to demand that my heart be open, but to ask, where is it? until this becomes the way that we meet situations, even difficult situations. For me, one of the most beautiful expressions of, um, of the spirit of loving kindness um, comes from a story I heard a few years ago, which concerns uh, Shirley Chisholm, who was a congresswoman from Brooklyn. And as you may remember one of my talks, I talked about working in the Congress the U.S. Congress, and I, I met her a number of times. She was about four foot ten. I think she was the first African American um, Congresswoman in quite a while. I think maybe since Reconstruction times. And she was small, but she was very powerful. And you may uh, know that she ran for president in 1972. Unfortunately, she didn't win. But, but in that campaign, one of the candidates was George Wallace, who was an arch segregationist. And pretty much writing what we might call a kind of a racist backlash. Not very disguised at times. And um, at one point during the campaign, there was an assassination attempt on George Wallace. And he was badly injured. And very soon after he was shot, Shirley Chisholm went to the hospital. And when he saw her, he said, your people aren't going to like that you're here. What are they going to say? And her response was, I wouldn't want this to happen to anyone. So very that kind of simple quality of metta, I believe, that could just meet that situation and have that um, kind of openness. And what's um, very moving to me is that the story doesn't really end there. A year or two later, 
she was the main advocate of a minimum, uh, of a rise in the minimum wage. And she needed a bunch of Southern Congress people to get it through. And she called on George Wallace and he made it work. And the bill passed. And still later, as some of you may know, he renounced his earlier views and actually came in his last years to be an advocate of reconciliation. And I like to think that those things were set in motion by very simple act of metta at that moment. That open response, which, which in that sense really can have unimaginable impact. And I think we know that at times, just that very simple metta at certain moments can shift someone's whole consciousness, shift the situation. So in our metta practice, we really learn continually, and this is a way maybe to look at it as we continue to practice. We continue to learn how to lead with our hearts. And that's why for many of us, it's a training. For myself, I did not grow up learning to lead with my heart. And so metta has been part of a beautiful training that helps me to do that more and to really integrate more my heart with my other qualities. I would say I was raised to lead with my mind and lead maybe with thinking and problem solving, which have their virtues, of course. Um, And partly through just relationships and partly through metta, there's been that further learning of how to lead with the heart. And we can see that as a, tra- a metta practice, as a training in leading with our hearts, to lead more with love and warmth and kindness and be, to be able to bring that increasingly to each moment in relation to ourselves, our practice, in relation to others. And so in the practice, we just continually come from that intention to open the heart. And sometimes our loving kindness practice can feel dry and feel like it's just saying words. And that's why I think it's really helpful somehow to connect with uh, what brings more emotion and more embodiment, uh, maybe the image of the person and so forth. But it does feel dry sometimes. When I was first practicing metta, it was quite dry for me. I would do metta practice and say the phrases and I didn't have a whole lot of impact. And the first time I ever did metta, I did a one week uh, kind of solo metta retreat. I don't think I had very good guidance because I don't think I had any guidance. (laughs) But I was was doing metta, but I was just repeating the phrases and it it felt quite dry, but I was kept on doing it kind of faithfully. And then, um, interestingly, uh, one day during breakfast, I think, 
when I was silent and eating breakfast and um, I noticed myself just saying to myself, I love you. <laughs> Without prompting, you know, just, just, and it was very, very moving, you know, and, and um, that, that's, retreats have those moments, don't they? They have those moments where something just comes out of the blue unexpectedly, you know. I remember when I was actively kind of working to really take care of my little one, you know, some, and I was working a lot with that sense of the child and um, was doing practices where I would just be with the child continually. And during that retreat, I had some very, very difficult times. And unexpectedly at those times, the child came and took care of me. The adult. It was very interesting. You know, there's this interesting relationship between our little one and our big one. And when the big one, in this case, was having a hard time, the little one came in actually without, again, just spontaneously the way the imagination works, just came in and soothed and took care. It was very interesting. So we keep on doing that practice. And we, as we do metta, we we develop in those qualities. I think ultimately the metta works because it really opens us up to our basic nature, as does all of this practice. And I think as we do this more, you know, maybe, and as the big one gets bigger, we get a sense that it's actually not something constructed, but more just who we are, most basically. In the Buddhist text, there's a um, phrase, which, which, or a passage, which I, I read or spoke um, one of the other talks in which the Buddha says, talks about the luminosity of our mind and heart, you know, this inherent luminosity. And in some of the texts, that luminosity is explicitly connected with metta. It's called the luminous citta, or the luminous quality of mind and heart. And it's taken to be beneath our conditioning. That this quality of um, luminosity and radiance is something that we don't construct, but that emerges as we practice, that comes more and more to be present, you know. And so we go through, sometimes in metta, sometimes in our other practices, we go through this process of purification that we often talk about, which I think is both a kind of moving towards what we might call pure, like that luminosity, and, it's all, and also um, a rising up of those qualities which obscure that radiance or luminosity. And a lot of our retreat is, has, may have that purification aspect of things coming up in our bodies, you know, our feeling our tensions in our bodies, our constricted patterns of mind, and we just stay with them, you know. We just stay with those patterns. We develop uh, patience and maybe some understanding and maybe go further in, in what I called the exhaustion method the other morning. You know, we develop that patience just to stay with it and notice it over and over again. And that's how I have found 
personally that the deeper patterns get deconstructed. They get noticed 5,000 times. More or less. <laughs> no. That's just a metaphor for meaning they get noticed a lot. You know, don't, not so helpful to be counting. <laughs> we just have to notice over and over again. And we're kind of, I don't know, maybe these retreats are for slow learners. <laughs> because we have to keep noticing over and over again. Have you had that experience? <laughs> And yet, when we do that, and we do keep noticing, when we have a sense of, oh, this is what I'm doing, right? I've done it 39,000 times, including 3,000 on this retreat. And, ah, you know, I have what um, my friend Roger Walsh calls a blinding insight into the totally obvious. but maybe that's not quite fair. <laughs> but we just keep noticing, and we you know, can do that in metta, and we do that in our mindfulness practice. We just keep noticing, we keep seeing what's there, and there is this amazing, mysterious um, process of purification, sometimes difficult, sometimes painful, and it happens. And things come up that we had no idea were gonna come up. And we're just invited to be with them with as much wisdom and compassion as we can. You know, and we, I hear from quite a number of you as we get in the last week of the retreat that the retreat didn't turn out exactly as planned. (laughs) And we sometimes say, don't evaluate the retreat until six months after the retreat actually. So if you're noticing a lot of thought process around how was this retreat? What am I going to tell my friends? They demand an answer. (laughs) Um, We'll talk more in detail about that later, but, but just suggestion here, just to keep coming back. The short answer is, Most people are are very satisfied by a one or two word uh, answer. So if that's the case, there's no need to think about it a lot. So so we do come to touch that as we do the metta and this process of purification happens, we do come to touch that at times that quality of heart, that radiance, And we come to let that lead us more, more and more. And we come to be able to, as we practice, to be able to invite it to be there, to sometimes even almost physically to be able to go to the heart, to touch the heart. So we have this wonderful practice of loving kindness that lets us lead with our hearts, that purifies, that lets us touch our radiance. And then we have this rather different practice called equanimity. You know, 
and it seems to work in a different way. I want to talk a little bit about equanimity. You know, in the Buddhist teachings, it's taken to be a very powerful and even advanced factor. When you look at where it appears in the, um, the Buddhist list, of which we are no doubt overly fond at this point, <laughs> you, know, you know, that um, I know some people say, I don't want to hear one more list. <laughs> but I think most of us, it was, is actually more just a very helpful way in that society, in an oral society, for people to be able to remember, I think, and to actually have access to the teachings. But in any case, um, equanimity is, is the last factor in so many lists. It's the last of the Brahma Vihara. It's the last of the seven factors of awakening. It's the last of the paramis or um, virtues or sometimes translated perfections. And in the context of the Brahma Vihara, it really is a heart quality imbued with wisdom. It's the heart that can hold all experiences and stay balanced. It's the heart that can hold everything. Things can be rushing around and we have a kind of still point of the heart, a still point of balance that lets us uh, be with what's there. It's not the same as calm. We can be equanimous in the midst of incredible busyness. It's more like the still point in the middle of the hurricane. You know, that keeps, that keeps the balance. Or it's like in um, Jewish tradition, some of you may know, there's a kind of a legend called the legend of the Lamed Vov. The Lamed Vov are the 36 just people many of them unknown, but they actually, by their existence, they keep the world in balance. They're called the just or the righteous. And many of them are unknown. They're not particularly taken to be famous necessarily. It could be the shopkeeper or the um, uh, mother, the grandmother. And it's taken that if any of them were missing, the world would lose its balance. They're like the still point that helps keep the balance. And that's literally what equanimity means. It means balance, upeka. And I've grown really to love equanimity. I don't know, it's a, I just have this very warm feeling for this quality, which in some sense could be interpreted not, as not so warm. And I've been very interested in equanimity. I've been fascinated by it. I love giving talks on equanimity. I think some of this comes from uh, my father who had a lot of equanimity. And he, he died about four years ago, named Simon. And he went through a whole lot in his life and seemed to keep an equanimity. He was very young and was in World War II. And some of his, he was in a B-24 and a bomber, and one time in the Pacific, uh, the, the plane crashed, and he, he broke both his wrists, luckily. No one was killed on that, but later 
he, while he was in the hospital for a number of weeks, the rest of the crew went off and never came back. So he experienced that. And we would sometimes go to uh, meditation events with uh, veterans together. It was quite, quite powerful. But he had, he had this equanimity. I know some of it probably was, was repression, but, but there was a tremendous amount of equanimity. Some things he just didn't want to face. You know. Sometimes he would ask me, why do you want to look at things? <laughs> why do you want to open up things? And he said, Don't, aren't, <laughs> aren't you just opening up a can of worms? You know, and I think some of that was about his um, maybe unacknowledged pain, of which there was a lot. But he was also... You know, being of Jewish background, he wanted to go to medical school. And there were very, very strict quotas when he was coming, so he couldn't go to medical school. And so he became a scientist, uh, which was okay. But he couldn't really do what he wanted to. And he had a lot of equanimity, I think, about that. He also, as a scientist, at one point was in laboratories where there wasn't good supervision of the chemicals they were using. And... Uh, he had a lot of chemicals, uh, vapor, get in his eyes. And we think that that actually later caused him to go blind, which happened about 10 years after that. So he was blind, legally blind, the last, um, I think, about uh, 25 years of his life. But he actually, even before that, so, but he took everything with a lot of balance, without bitterness. He wasn't bitter towards the government. You know, I'm not, I'm not holding it up as a complete exemplar because I just think there were places he didn't want to go. But there was a lot of equanimity, and I was inspired. He also had cancer the last 27 years of his life you know, and eventually died from the effects of the radiation treatment on the first cancer, which caused another cancer. You know. And so he was blind, had cancer, and he continued to look at the positive, you know, and was really balanced with, with all that and quite inspiring, you know, and I think I have not had to deal with all those challenges and I haven't even mentioned some of the others, you know, he had some other diseases. So the other thing that I remember, which is about equanimity, is that he ate really, really slowly. <laughs> I don't know if that's a quality of equanimity, but I was thinking about that today, just you know, going through the dining hall and being with the food. He ate really, really slowly. It really prepared me for retreats. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, so I think I learned a lot about equanimity, you know, and, and I think sometimes when I have challenges, that example really is there for me. You know, so I really uh, appreciate that. So there are these qualities of equanimity that are good to look at. And Heather mentioned a number of them, uh, at least in passing, uh, two nights ago. You know, uh, first, there's that really that quality of balance, uh, of being able to be with what's there without reactivity. So it's a quality that we develop in our mindfulness practice, in our basic practice, it's almost as if my experience with retreats is a lot of my retreats I just get given. I, well, first of all, personally, a lot of my retreats alternate between wonderful and difficult. Or how should I say? Wonderful 
um, cheerful and wonderful difficult. <laughs> but in any case, uh, kind of alternate with difficult, um, difficult experiences. It's almost like I sometimes, some of my retreats just seem to be, okay, this is where I learned about fear more, or this is where I learned about anger, or this is where I learned about uh, self-judgment, or this is where I learned about sadness. You know, and sometimes I think the equanimity in the long run comes out of understanding from having hung out with the whole range of human experience, you know, and gone into depth on some of the challenging ones and some of our main patterns. So we develop that quality of balance. Um, Nayana Ponikatara in that, um, there's a wonderful essay on the Brahma Vihara that Heather read from, and he speaks about equanimity as perfect, unshakable balance of mind rooted in insight. So there's the wisdom factor and there's the heart factor of being able to be with, with all that appears. It's a kind of even-handedness towards any experience, of being able to be present with any experience increasingly in a balanced way. And it gives a kind of a, a steadiness to our experience. You know, in the text, it talks about an unshakable quality of the equanimous being. You know, there's a passage, a beautiful passage from the uh, Majjhima Nikaya uh, in which the Buddha is talking to his son Rahula and he says, Rahula developed meditation that is like the earth. This is really an equanimity practice. For when you develop meditation that is like the earth, agreeable and disagreeable contacts will not invade your mind and remain. Just as people throw clean things and dirty things, excrement, urine, spittle, pus, and blood on the earth, and the earth is not horrified, humiliated, and disgusted because of that, so too Rahula developed meditation that is like the earth. For when you develop meditation that is like the earth, agreeable and disagreeable contacts will not invade your mind and remain. That quality, we might say, of unshakability, of being able to be with what Heather called the four vicissitudes, or what are sometimes called the eight worldly conditions, or the eight worldly winds of pleasure and pain, gain and loss, um, praise and blame, fame and disrepute. Those are very interesting to study in our experience, to actually give a little more precision sometimes towards uh, to our to our practice of equanimity. Notice, okay, that was a moment of pleasure that, that I grabbed at, or that was a moment of pain that was difficult. So just to really notice these winds as they come through. And as we practice, we become more able to be with what's there. And the winds come, and we don't get knocked around so much. That's equanimity. You know, and I was, I was reflecting on a a powerful experience that I had about 20 years ago when I came to California. Maybe it was kind of initiation rites of coming to California from, I had been living in uh, rural, rural uh, Ohio and Kentucky for seven years. And I came out in an old car and I had a, um, well, basically on Route 70 on a Saturday night at 8.30 p.m., in Kansas City, Missouri, my transmission went out. Right as I was going uh, in Kansas City, going around a bend in the fast lane with no breakdown lane, 
on a Saturday night in the dark. So you know the end of the story because I'm here. <laughs> but uh, what was interesting for me at that time was that you know, my car just basically came to a stop in the fast lane on a curve. I was on like a, kind of like an aqueduct. Right next to me, it went down 60 feet. No breakdown lane, cars going at 70 or 80 miles an hour. I knew it was a dangerous situation. And something, though, was interesting for me. I did not feel fear. And later, I, I, thought, that, I thought it had something to do with practice. And I'm not saying that practice will guarantee something like that in a, in a dangerous situation, but there was something that in that moment was equanimous and could do what was necessary to be done. And um, kind of a long story as to how it all happened, uh, you know, uh, but eventually someone, um, a car of people came and pushed my car off the next exit. You know, after about 20 or 30 minutes of being there, I realized that if another car hit my car and I was near that car, it'd be very dangerous. But, but it was something that was striking to me, that there was a sense of not being taken away by fear and being very present. And I personally attributed that. Maybe, maybe it's not so accurate. I attributed it to uh, years of practice and some way of being able to just be present in my body. And I've experienced that at other times like that. And maybe you have too. I imagine a lot of those experiences where in some, some moment where in the past you would have been scared, practice helps with that equanimity. Tremendous, tremendous gift. So there's that unshakability. There's also the quality of understanding with equanimity, the quality of insight. Sometimes it can really be having the long view, knowing that we may be in this for the long haul as practitioners, you know, that um, my friend Larry Yang likes to ask the question, how do you relate to the immensity of awakening? And does it, does it um, seem like too much? You know, he was asking this particularly also for people who were interested in in social justice. And he asked a similar question, how does it, how do you relate to the fact that social evolution happens slowly? And it's an immensity to move to a a just, harmonious, sustainable society. And how do you hold that? With equanimity, we have the long view, you know, And we can, I think, it's very helpful to have the long view in relation to our practice. And yet we do get caught, right? We get caught in thinking, oh my God, this is what's happening today, or this hour, or this practice. And the long view, very, very helpful to have that in whatever we're doing, whether it's practice or um, our work in the world. Uh, Dr. Aryaratni from Sri Lanka in response to the civil war in Sri Lanka, developed a 500-year plan. He said, the roots of the problems caused took 500 years. We need 500 years to work them out. The poet Gary Snyder says, it's very helpful 
to look at whatever's happening in the world with a 4,000 year perspective. He wasn't kidding. So that long view, part of equanimity, understanding better the immensity of causes and conditions. It's really about understanding that causes and conditions leading to suffering are complicated. There may be a lot of them. And we also have with equanimity a quality of faith, I think. There's a quality with equanimity that we can just in a way rest in being, that we have a trust. Equanimity has a quality of trust and faith. So you can see how these factors that we were identifying with liberative dependent arising get integrated and that continue to spiral as we've been saying. So faith becomes part of wisdom. And we may have had experiences here. Have you had experiences where you could almost just say, I can just rest in this moment in, in some deep and powerful way. It's enough. I rest in the very fact of being present just here and somehow that's enough and actually can have beauty. So how do we connect the two? And I'll I'll end by pointing to some of the qualities of the connection. And one of the ways that's helpful for me to reflect on how loving kindness and equanimity or one way that the heart and wisdom get, get connected is as I mentioned that without the, one or, without the one, the other will be distorted, will tend to be distorted. And so we have this wonderful teaching in the Brahma Vihara, the teaching of the near enemies, which we haven't talked about so much in the talks. I think some in the uh, 4.30 sessions, but we have this sense that there are distorted versions of each of the Brahma Vihara. There are imposters. There are Brahma Vihara imposters in our midst. (laughs) So there's the, and they're called near enemies. And I love it, it's a very subtle teaching. It's a teaching that, that loving kindness can be overly, what, graspy, essentially. That's the near enemy of loving kindness. It can be grasping or possessive or needy or overly uh, sentimental, you know. You know, in in our everyday lives, uh, I would say being overly nice is a near enemy of metta. You know, that's why I'm very interested in tough metta. (laughs) I think it'll be a core Western teaching. (laughs) So being overly nice, you know, it's a definite occupational hazard for Buddhists. Metta contributes to the problem, but so to speak. Um, And so we have, we can see the near enemies. We can see how metta can, can, when it's not informed by wisdom, can become grasping. And what does wisdom say? Look out for grasping. Understand the roots of suffering. See if you're developing metta in certain ways because you're scared of anger you know, or scared of conflict. You know, so we can see in those ways how 
uh, metta to be really fully developed needs equanimity, needs the factors of wisdom. And I think that one of the aspects of the Brahmi Vihara, which uh, I love, is that in their mature expression, all of the Brahmi Viharas get integrated. So that loving kindness in its mature state has qualities of compassion and joy and equanimity. And equanimity in its mature state has the qualities of loving kindness and joy and compassion. So the near enemies of equanimity, classically, the near enemy is called indifference. It's very clear. It's equanimity that has the absence of the heart, right? And so we can look for that. Is your equanimity overly cold? Is it connected with your heart? You know, and we see many, many ways that can get expressed. You know, we can have um, our near enemy of equanimity look something like denial. You know, I'm really equanimous basically because I stuff everything. Right? That could be maybe that's a big near enemy. You know, where I'm I'm very equanimous in in my life in the world because I live in a privileged environment and don't have to deal with anything hard. I would say that's a near enemy of equanimity. Where I'm complacent or I'm resigned to something. These are near enemies. And you can see how the near enemies of equanimity are responded to and in a sense remedied by bringing in more metta. So it's a beautiful balance that the qualities of loving kindness and equanimity, or which I'm using really a shorthand for the heart and wisdom, they require each other. And we can always ask, is my heart informed by wisdom? Is my wisdom in touch with my heart? Wonderful, wonderful ways just to track our practice. This is what Nayana Padmakatara says about that, about that balance. Equanimity rooted in insight is the guiding and restraining power for the other three sublime states. It points out to them the direction they have to take and sees to it that this direction is followed. Equanimity guards love and compassion from being dissipated in vain quest and from going astray in the labyrinths of uncontrolled emotion. The German monk. <laughs> <laughs> was that was that wise speech? <laughs> Factually true, but was that wise speech? Um, equanimity, being vigilant, self-control for the sake of the final goal, does not allow sympathetic joy to rest content with humble results, forgetting the real aims we have to strive for. Equanimity, which means even-mindedness, gives to love an even, unchanging firmness and loyalty. It endows it with the great virtue of patience. Equanimity furnishes compassion with an even, unwavering courage and fearlessness, enabling it to face the awesome abyss of misery and despair which confront boundless compassion again and again, 
to the active side of compassion, equanimity is the calm and firm hand led by wisdom, indispensable to those who want to practice the difficult art of helping others. And here again, equanimity means patience, the patient devotion to the work of compassion. So you can see how they get interpenetrated, integrated together. And I, I believe that that really is a way to respond to that original dilemma, that ultimately wisdom has to have these heart elements and the heart has to have these, these wisdom elements. The great Hindu sage Nisargadatta said it like this, I find that somehow by shifting the focus of attention, I become the very thing that I look at and experience the kind of consciousness it has. I become the inner witness of the thing. I call this capacity of entering other focal points of consciousness love. You may give it an, any name you want. Love says I am everything. Wisdom says I am nothing. Between the two, my life flows. Love says I am everything. Wisdom says I am nothing. So you get the sense of the apparent contradiction, but he says, between the two, my life flows. Maybe better understood as a kind of creative tension. They don't speak the same language exactly, but they have to be in touch with each other. They have to be in communication. So I think I want to end with a short passage from um, another poem by Gary Snyder. This is a poem by, from, by Gary Snyder, which really gets at this quality of the relation of the two. This is from a recent poem called uh, After uh, Bhamayan. This is named after the uh, Buddhas that were uh, destroyed in Afghanistan. Um, I think actually right uh, the same year of 9-11, right, right that same, same period. And he was responding to those who say, oh, they're just impermanent. Why would you bother? And so he had a reflection on impermanence and he, he quotes a poem that I'll get to in a moment. It's a poem by the Japanese poet uh, Isa. And it's a poem that Isa wrote when his um, son died. And the lines in it talk about the dewdrop world, which is a reference to the Diamond Sutra, the way that the world is just like a dewdrop or like a rainbow or like a dream. So this is what Gary Snyder said in that context, which has, has really, for me, powerful lines, and I'll end with this. Ah, yes, impermanence. But this is never a reason to let compassion and focus slide, or to pass of the sufferings of others because they are merely impermanent beings. Isa's haiku goes, this dewdrop world is but a dewdrop world, and yet. And Snyder says, that and yet is our perennial practice and maybe the root of the Dharma. I'll read that one more time. Ah yes, impermanence, but this is never a reason to let compassion and focus slide 
or to pass of the sufferings of others because they are merely impermanent beings. Isa's haiku goes, this dewdrop world is but a dewdrop world, and yet, that and yet is our perennial practice and maybe the root of the Dharma. Let's sit for a while. This dewdrop world is but a dewdrop world, and yet, that and yet is our perennial practice and maybe the root of the Dharma. so much for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org dot org slash donate.